just so grateful to be able to share in the word. I've had a tremendous time, really, um, in sharing it. So um, we are, again, jumping back into the word of God, and we're looking today, tonight, rather, at Romans chapter 8. We're going to go to Romans chapter 8, and the, the sermon title today is a question, which is, are you free? Are you free? So Romans 8, as you probably know, is one of the most popular chapters in all the Bible. Outside of John 3.16, it is probably the most quoted and quotable verse in all of a chapter in all of the Bible. As much as it happens, though, with anything we understand in the scriptures is that this verse has often been used out of context to promote something that we theologians call antinomianism. So that's a big word, doesn't mean much to you all, but it isn't unnecessary. It is a significant understanding that 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 word carries. It has quite a simple meaning, and the meaning is this. It could probably be boiled down to this. Antinomianism means against the law. And so a lot of people who are against the law and the moral of God have used Romans 8 as their justification for saying we don't need any of the rules or the standards or the righteousness of God because we have been made free through Jesus Christ. But they're doing that really in an effort to serve the authority of Scripture and subvert the work of Christ. This passage has been used by people as an overarching, I would say, out for people who think that they won't have to suffer ultimately for their sins. That is not, though, what this verse is referring to, okay? The view that many of the people hold who interpret this verse improperly believe in something called universalism, which is because of this verse, all universally have been freed from their sins because of the death of Jesus Christ, and all universally will end up in heaven. But that is not what this text means. They do believe, though, that the death of Jesus Christ applies to every single person that has ever lived, regardless if they make a profession, regardless if their life has changed, if there's any sanctification, that at the end of time and at the end of everybody's life, they will all end up in heaven. Now, we would probably think, well, yeah, that's a great way to think about it. Nobody is going to be condemned for their sins because the death of Jesus atoned for every single sin of every person. But we know that's not the case. In fact, the more proper understanding is two terms, one I lean on and one other people lean on. One is going to be limited atonement, which is that the death of Jesus does not atone for the sins of every single person, but for the sins of those who believe. Some people call that also particular redemption. And so what we want to understand is that, and I mentioned it a little bit earlier, in understanding that we have been set free in Jesus Christ, we have not been set free in a way that gives us a license to sin. We have not been set free in a way that we believe that the death of Jesus Christ has atoned for my sins, whether or not I repent and believe the gospel. Now, this is what we talked about in our first sermon, which is that many people just misunderstand what we mean by free and what the text means by free. The hope of many people is that 
they will be free from their sins. And for some reason, they believe that freedom will then be their free permit to continue in their sins. For this reason, many people have rejected the idea of eternal security. And many people accept the Arminian view of salvation, which is you can gain it on your own. You can lose it on your own. And the reason people reject eternal security is because they think that it is a license to sin. But I'll tell you this. If I knew that, one, my salvation was up to me, I wouldn't be saved until I got sick, right? I wouldn't be saved. It's like, all right, I can discern the clouds. I can discern the sign of times. All right, God, I lost it yesterday. Let me regain it back today. There is no more license to sin than knowing I'm responsible for my salvation on my own. But not only that. I have no reason if I got my salvation myself to evangelize. I got mine. You get yours. But that's not the case. And that's not what we understand about the gospel. The Bible does not affirm this premise. So what we want to do tonight is look with depth at our text. And at the end of this sermon, my hope is that you can answer the sermon title question, which is, are you free? Let's look at Romans 8. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Let's pray. Father God, this is just another opportunity to share in your word. God, we're going to dive deeply tonight just to discover what freedom truly looks like in our lives and the freedom that you provided for us in the scriptures and what we are free to and free from in a greater depth, God. So I just pray at the end of this sermon, um, if there is anyone who feels that they are still in bondage to their sins, God, or, or if there are people in here who know people who are in bondage to their sins, that after this sermon, they will be encouraged to go witness and share the gospel and evangelize and disciple many of their friends and family members that they know are still in prison. That is our hope. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul opens up this text here by proclaiming quite concisely that there is no condemnation. Pause. Right? No condemnation. Now, why do I pause right there? The reason why I pause is because, unfortunately, that is the way that most people prefer this text to read. There is no condemnation. That's it. Everyone has been absolutely free. No one will be condemned. No one will be eternally separated from God. We can stop right there. It's like a little ransom note. I cut out the pieces I like. I throw away the other pieces I don't want, except when I need to leverage other people with those scriptures. But we won't talk about that. So I'm using the scripture that most benefits me and most people read it like this. There is no condemnation. They have paused and only saw that universally in their own belief, 
All people have escaped condemnation. Now, what is this condemnation here referring to? It is referring to the eternal condemnation that comes as a result of living an unrepentant and sinful life. But that just isn't how most people would prefer to read this text. And if I'm being honest, in my flesh, in my carnality, I don't desire to read this text that way either. Because if I read the text as it is intended when Paul wrote it, then I realize, oh, wait. I'm condemned without Jesus Christ. But if I read it the way most people prefer to read it, then there's no condemnation. I can do whatever I want to do. I can live however I want to live. I am free from condemnation. But that's not what this text says. There is something uncomfortable to people when they can clearly see that according to the justice of God comes the judgment of God. The idea that God would condemn anyone runs roughshod against the idea of the bleeding, loving Savior we think we see in the gospel versus the condemning, harsh, judgmental God of the Old Testament. Many people see that there are two distinct gods at work and they prefer the lighthearted one that doesn't condemn sin. So there's this escapism, right, that has to happen. But according to Paul, there is a clause. Do you see the clause? It's what we call in seminary a conditional clause. There is no condemnation, conditional clause, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Only those of us who have been truly washed in the blood of Jesus, redeemed through his death and purchased by his love. So if no one is so if one is not in Christ, Paul is not referring to them here. Only those of us who are in Christ escape the condemnation of God. People have really wrestled with this. That, however, is the exclusivity of the gospel. In an inclusive world, there is an exclusivity to the gospel. Not all will make it into heaven. Only those who have repented by the grace of God and believed the gospel by the grace of God will escape the condemnation of God. So not everyone is included. While it could include everyone, it doesn't. So I like what Paul does here, and I think it's extremely important. He qualifies for us what he means by freedom, and I want to expose the major misinterpretations about this text. There are many, I referred to them earlier, there are many of the popular churches, when they read this text, and when they read what it says, they believe that it is referring to the moral law of God. People assume improperly here that Paul is saying that because of Jesus, we are freed. But most people just see freed from the law. And again, they pause and they close the Bible and they say, you know what? That's good. There is no condemnation and I'm free from the law. Let's go do whatever I want to do. That, however, isn't what it actually says. 
It actually says we are free from the law of sin and death. Oh, wait. This is what it really says. And let me tell you what it says. And let me tell you why it is important to understand what it actually means. The moral law of God for us summarized in the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, was impossible for us to meet. The perfect requirement of the law was perfect obedience. When failed in thought, word, and deed, there is a simple equation. Sin meant death. The very character and nature of God is reflected for us in the Ten Commandments. God's standard of holiness is outlined for us in Deuteronomy. And Jesus quotes from it when he says, love God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. This isn't a new commandment. This is what has always been. So while people think that Jesus lowered the standard of righteousness, he actually comes and he exacts what the law actually meant. So what law has Jesus freed us from? We have to answer that. It is the law that sin brings death. We who believe have been freed from that law because we have the imputation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So sin, which once absolutely brought death to us, we've been freed from that law. Now, again, this may sound like once saved, always saved, do whatever you want, but it's not. It is not saying that all are free, but it is saying that those who believe have been free. God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. What could the law not do? It could not save. The law could not declare us righteous. The law could not be the substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. The law could not condemn sin in our flesh. Jesus did all of that. So that is the holy and righteous requirement of the law that it might be fulfilled in us. That's what Jesus did. Let's really work through this. What was the righteous requirement of the law? God required perfect obedience to the law by all of us. There are no ifs, ands, or buts about that. And this is the hang up for many people. They see what was required of us in the Old Testament and they think, right, okay, I cannot possibly do that. And because they don't understand the work of Jesus Christ, they forsake the totality of the law because they know they don't measure up. They say, I don't measure up to this. So I won't obey it at all. I won't find my righteousness in the work of Jesus at all. And they live their lives totally antithetical to what it says. And again, they believe that there are these two distinct gods. There is the Old Testament harsh, merciless, vengeful God. And in the New Testament, they believe that Jesus is the soft, compassionate, grace-heavy God. But as in the case. 
God in the New Testament and the Old Testament required of us perfect obedience to the law. But here's the thing. The law has done nothing for us to be perfectly obedient to it. So how could God expect us to be perfectly obedient to his law, but the law not provide the means to make that possible? He gives us Jesus. That is what he does. Jesus, who is God incarnate, and he lives a perfectly righteous, sinless life. He never said a sinful word. He never thought a sinful thing. He never did a sinful deed. So God does something amazing through Jesus Christ. He takes his righteousness. He takes his obedience and he then places that on our backs when we repent and believe the gospel and the sin he saw on us. He now sees on Jesus. He has placed the righteousness of Jesus on our backs and in our place. He put a cross on the back of Jesus. And on that cross, Jesus bore my sins. I'm going to talk about this a little tomorrow, but there's so much talk about fairness and justice in our world. Well, if you want to talk about fairness and justice, that's not fair. Because I should have been on the cross. You want to talk about justice, that ain't just. Because those were my sins, yet somehow in the wisdom of God, which is the foolishness of men, he took what should have been mine and he gave it to Jesus. What in the world? And here I am looking for every loophole I can find in the Bible to do what I want to do. Well, the Bible never mentioned this. It never said that. So I guess I can just do it. I'm so glad Jesus didn't try to find a loophole in going to the cross. Because we'd all be dead. So this is what Jesus means when he says that he did not come to abolish or dismantle the law. He came to fulfill it. People say that. They do not need God's law or the Ten Commandments. But see, this is the thing. If you dismiss the law of God, then you aren't just dismissing his law, but you're also dismissing that Jesus fulfilled the requirement of the law. There is a prominent preacher. This is what I've been told to say in my church because they told me to stop using people's names. I have a I look, I like John MacArthur a lot, so I do things that John MacArthur does sometimes. So I'm not saying names, but there's a prominent pastor in Atlanta whose dad is also a pastor. I mean, you can just gauge however you need to. I didn't say anybody's name. Anybody ever watched Whole Stanley? You on that? Stanley? Okay, all right. Anyway, so there's this um prominent pastor in in Atlanta who firmly believes that we have no need of the Old Testament. In fact, in one of his books, he says, I wish that Christians would stop their, their incessant belief in reaching back in the old sayings and teachings of the Old Testament. 
But this is the issue. If I don't have that Jesus fulfilled the perfect law, which was given to us through Moses, that Jesus was perfectly obedient to it, then if I disregard everything that happens in the Old Testament, there is no Jesus in the New Testament. So you can't have one without the other, Andy. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Excuse me, I don't, I don't know what happened there. I slipped back into my, my ways. There is this beautiful parallel that Paul presents here that I want to go back to. He says that Jesus has condemned sin in the flesh. Paul opens up this chapter by saying that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Jesus Christ. But he makes a point as he is closing out these verses that Jesus has condemned something in us. While he has not condemned us, he has condemned the sin that is in us. The reason we are not condemned is because sin is condemned in us. Because of this, we have been set free from the weight and the penalty of our sins. And true freedom makes that evident in your life. For the one who has truly been washed, there should not be found in you the practice of sin. Now, I want to be very specific about what I mean, the practice of sin. We all have had different moments in our lives. I think we all know what that looked like in our lives, and that is the inconveniencing of our lives, the intentionally orchestrating our lives around and prohibiting righteousness and allowing sin in our lives. The constant, diligent pursuit of sin and unrighteousness to fulfill our carnal desires. Jesus Christ has condemned sin in us. If you are a Christian and you know the weight of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, why would you practice sin? Again, I said this earlier. There are some heresies which say that ultimate freedom on earth is that we will attain sinlessness, but that is not the case. But we will escape the rule and the power of sin. And here in this church today, how many of you feel like sin is still ruling you? Listen, I'm actually not like one of these like fire and brimstone preachers that only talks about sin. But the reality is, is that if I don't attack my own sins with the word of God, with good spiritual disciplines, then I don't stand a chance. The true testament of freedom in Christ, true freedom, is not in your strength. It is in the fact that you are incredibly weak. I tell people all the time, I am an incredibly weak man. (laughs) Weak, all right? 
And at every opportunity that some pastor fails or falls or some Christian demonstrates a life of hidden sin, I don't feel more righteous, right? I feel like I'm one wrong decision away. And the only hope I have is that I'm not free unto myself. That my life is totally dependent on Jesus Christ. When you are alone with your thoughts, do you act on your deepest inhibitions? Listen, I tell people this all the time, and you have to know this. You are the worst sinner you know. I'm the worst sinner I know. Listen, ain't nobody compete with me. I know every thought. I know every desire. And those of us who have attained that level of maturity in Christ know it ain't me. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, not I. But it's Christ who lives in me. Paul seals this passage by saying that the only way the righteous requirement of the law mentioned above may be fulfilled in us is that we walk according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. I don't know how many people in here can testify about even times where you were a Christian or thought you were a Christian, there was some deep, dark sin that you wrestled with, and I'm just as guilty as anybody, for years, right? And you think, God, if I could just get free from that, I want to have the same joy and peace and love and freedom that I see other Christians have, but there's this dark cloud of sin that you can't get freed from, and then one day Jesus Christ snatches that sin out of your life and you experience true freedom. And I got to tell you, There is nothing like that level of freedom. When the thing that you once indulged in now grosses you out. That if anybody mentions it, you are ashamed to know that it was once attached to your life. Listen, I know. I know the struggles now. There are many of you who are still wrestling with this. You don't have to be in bondage to sin. You can be free. That sin that is looming over you, you can be free. And I'm telling you, the peace you are looking for in your life will be found in that freedom. The only way, though, that you will have freedom, according to this scripture, is when we walk according to the spirit and not according to our flesh. It's the only way. We do not have the ability within ourselves to thwart our own sinful desires. We are powerless, not only against the devices of Satan, we are powerless against ourselves. We, not Satan, We are the greatest threats to our salvation. 
There is only one way to be truly free. And the Bible says that you must repent and believe the gospel. Now, here's the thing. We are not able to do that on our own. We are not able to do that without God overcoming our wills and saving us. But when he does it, freedom is the byproduct of our salvation. How do I know that I am in Christ? Through the sovereign will and grace of God, I have seen clearly that I am a hopeless, filthy, lost sinner who has no shot at being saved. It is only when I have turned from my life of sin and turmoil and believed in the sacrificial death of Jesus, then and only then will I be saved and freed from my sins. And the Bible tells me, 1 John, that no one born of God continues to practice sin. So I'm going to ask you this final question. And for those of you who are writing, I want you to ask it very personally. Are you free? Are you free? Let's pray. Father God, these are certainly weighty things for us to talk about and God, we realize that we are hopeless without you, but the beautiful part about the gospel is that you will, through your grace in salvation, free us from our sins. God, even for those of us in this room who are Christians and who are being bogged down by some hidden sin, that is irritating our lives, that is disrupting who we are, that is not allowing us to walk in the peace and the joy and the freedom that you intended for us. God, I believe that there is freedom in this text. That if we feel condemned, if we feel shamed, if we feel guilt, that that does not come as a product of our salvation. But God, we so desperately need you. When I think about the fact that on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for my sins. The death that should have been mine. Yet God, you accredited. You credited what was in his account to my account. God, I was born with an enormous sin debt and I can't afford to pay it. And I'm accruing interest every day I live apart from you. And Lord, one day you are going to ask for a payment to be made. And if Jesus hasn't made that payment, My life will be the payment. God, you freed us from that. And so, Lord, we just ask for those of us who don't know you, that you will give us an opportunity 
that you will overcome our wills, that you will invade our lives, and that you will so sovereignly save us, and that you will pay the debt of our sins. And for those of us, God, who know you and who are wrestling and struggling, God, give them the strength that they need through the Holy Spirit to walk in absolute, total freedom from sin in you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please stand.